0: I do not know why I am so nervous about this episode. It's my fourth annual April Fool's episode, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. I don't have any new Patreon supporters to thank this week, but I will give you the spiel. Nonetheless, if you want to support the podcast, please, please, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody and you can pledge your support either monthly or yearly. It's so easy. And by the way, this episode comes at the specific request of one of my newer Patreon supporters. So, Andrew, this one is for you. I also really want to thank my new friend Nuno, for having been an invaluable help in finding some of the most obscure and hard-to-obtain recordings by the Portuguese soprano Natalia de Andrade, who is featured today among three other really out-there singers. Okay, are we all set to go? All right, let's hear it! Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week, you will encounter me, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world. Thank you for joining me on that path. now, this week's episode. Four years ago, I published an episode called Alternate Universe Bel Canto, in which I featured a panoply of singers who had their very unique way with music, both pop and opera. Today, we're going to focus entirely on the music of Giuseppe Verdi, and I've decided to call the episode Make Your Own Kind of Music, Verdi Edition. And you know, from the very first time I heard it, the song Make Your Own Kind of Music has made me cry, and it still does. I don't know, it's so insipid, but man, it touches my heart so deeply. Of course, it was a big hit for Cass Elliot, and I understand that there is a TikTok meme these days specifically associated with this song, so I'm being trendy without even intending to. I found a duet of this song that was featured on The Julie Andrews Show in 1972 that paired Julie and Cass together together doing a mashup of Make Your Own Kind of Music with the other Berry Man, Cynthia Weil, Earworm, New World Coming. I do think both of these tunes are extremely appropriate for today's episode, so take it away, gals. Nobody can tell ya There's only one song worth
1: singing They may try and sell ya Cause it
2: hangs them up to see.
0: To take that dictum, make your own kind of music? Would we take it so far as to accommodate a voice and an artistry like this? A cadenzarization by the inimitable Marie Lynn, who in the 1980s had a cable access show in Manhattan that was called The Golden Treasury of Song. It had an enormous following, which it still has to this day, and Marie Lynn was well featured on the alternate universe Belcanto episode. But good news there's a huge cache of Marie Lynn material. Not all of it is so easily accessible on the Internet, but thank goodness I got my hands on some of it, and I can't wait to play some more Marie Lynn for you, Anon. But first, to elaborate on that question of what kind of of one's own music does that song really espouse, here's a recording made by the British soprano Olive Middleton in the 1950s. She would have already been probably well into her 60s at this point. And what I hear when I listen to it is a not very adept singer, not all that interesting, just a little squally, just a little raucous, but nothing to make my hair stand on end. Here's her recording of Ernani in Volami er Oh, the body of the that in the 1960s, she was the leading diva at the La Puma Opera Company in New York, which produced some pretty rough-and-ready performances that had one thing going for them, the enthusiasm of the participants. Certainly, skill was pretty much thrown out the window, as we will hear in this, our first example from Verdi's Il Trovatore. This is the Miserere, in which we hear Olive Middleton as Leonora, an unknown tenor who best remains unknown, and the must-be-heard-to-be-believed ragtag male chorus of the La Puma Opera Company. Please note that Madame Middleton's vocal glamour still encompasses an optional high C. (laughs) company had an extraordinarily enthusiastic public who would go specifically to hear their diva Olive Middleton, whom they would regale with applause and guffaws in equal measure. Let us say a word about this towering operatic personality. Olive Townend Middleton was an English soprano born in the 1890s who had sung, according to her New York Times obituary, at Covent Garden under Thomas Beecham in Mozart operas and with the Halle Orchestra in Manchester. She had sung in opera at the Old Palms Gardens here and with the Salmaggi Opera Company in Carnegie Hall. She also gave recitals at Town Hall. No mention anywhere of the La Puma Opera Company, amazingly. We leave it to the Kalas scholar John Ardoin, who wrote an enthusiastic note on an issue of Olive Middleton's live recordings. Though we live in an age populated by vocal giants, few bring as much joy to their art or their listener as Olive Middleton. Those who have been privileged to witness her Norma, Tosca, Aida, Gioconda, Adriana, Fedora, or Leonora, know intimately and treasure her unique artistry. Indeed, no soprano comes readily to mind who could duplicate the singular qualities which set Madame Middleton so apart from her contemporaries. Her art is rooted in love, a love for singing, a love for music, a love for her audience. She disperses this primary element in unstinting fashion, sharing with her public a devotion to and a pursuit of art that is surely without parallel. From that same performance of Trovatore, of which we heard the Miserere, here's Leonora's opening aria, Tace la Notte Placida, and we get to hear as Inez an unnamed co-conspirator of Olive Middleton's, I wouldn't be surprised if it was someone who maybe studied voice with her. They sound remarkably similar. And by the way, one discovers in Olive Middleton's obituary that her husband was a voice teacher, was a voice teacher. So maybe we know who's responsible for (laughs) the training behind this unique voice. I do want to briefly introduce you all to the other two primary divas that I will be featuring today. In a very brief moment, between the Cavatina and the Cavaletta, Tace la Notte, and D'Italia Amor, we're going to hear, once again, Marie Lynn from the Golden Treasury of Songs All Verdi program that was broadcast in the mid-1980s. And now, for the first time today, we will hear the Portuguese soprano Natalia de Andrade singing D'Italia Amor," which was one of her standby numbers. This recording was made in circa 1981 and was self-produced. What I love about this version is that there's a certain fearlessness to her attack, and I use the word attack advisedly, and yet she also finds ways of distending the vocal line, bringing a little bit of poetry into the proceedings. Sometimes she's not quite coordinated with her pianist, but these are minor
2: concerns. <laughs> Perezzo, se io non vivrò, perezzo, perezzo, per esso io morirò, se io non vivrò, perezzo, per esso io morirò, oh, sempre so morirò, per esso morirò. Oh. Oh! <laughs>
0: it be said that I'm only talking about Sopranos today, I have good news. We have a pretty dreadful Mezzo Soprano too, whom some of you may have heard of before. I did not feature her on the Alternate Universe Bel Canto episode, however. Her name is Sylvia Sawyer, and she was an American mezzo-soprano in the 1950s who somehow ended up on these recordings for the Capitol Records label, which were recorded under the auspices of the Rome Opera House. Now, I had read somewhere that she herself, or perhaps, you know, a rich husband or something, footed the bill for these recordings which featured such artists as Stella Roman, Antonio Serra, a well-known Italian baritone, Gino Sarri, a dramatic tenor, and Iorios Bardi Coccolios, who, if anybody knows that name, might recognize him as the tenor who appeared opposite Maria Callas in the Maggio Musicale Fiorentino production of Vespri Siciliani, which was one of Callas's early successes. So these were not negligible artists. They may have been somewhat provincial, although Stella Roman, I think, was, even with her flaws, a wonderful singer. But then there's Sylvia Sawyer, and man, this is a voice that is best left to plead its own case, because there's not much I can say in support of her application for the position of Verdi Mezzo. She recorded three different roles, Amneris in Aida, she recorded Ulrica in Ballo in Maschera, and she recorded Azucena in Trovatore. And we're going to hear a little bit of Azucena's narrative, Condotte le in which Azucena describes the quite improbable story of throwing the wrong baby into the fire. I mean, if we're talking about the ridiculousness of opera, or at least of operatic plots, one doesn't have to look very far past some of Verdi's plots, and certainly Trovatore is the most ridiculous of them all. But nevertheless, when it's done well, you got a pretty effective pot boiler. I'm not sure this is so effectively done. Some of those squawks in Sylvia's upper register are not to be believed. But the best thing about her by far is her incredibly Americanized Italian diction. I mean, it's like she can't even be bothered to try. And say the words correctly. And remember, this was recorded under the aegis of the Rome Opera, so go figure. We hear briefly tenor Gino Sarri as Manrico.
3: (sweak) O may you insoglie a parve. La visio è ferroile. Dispovento è salarve. Ischerri è di siplizio. La mar isborita in voto. Scalzo, discinto.
2: Il e il e il notte grido. A sconto, mi muro.
3: Four, Three, go four, cor.
0: For those of you who listened to my Alternate Universe Bel Canto episode four years ago, or maybe have more recently listened to it, as I did this past week, and I was quite happy to say that I think it really stands up. It was well chosen. I remember throwing this together at the absolute last minute, but it really works. It's got a wide range of singers, and all of them, some degree or other, of just plain awful. The most artistic of those awful singers is surely the Portuguese soprano Natalia de Andrade. In her native Portugal, she is as famous as Florence Foster Jenkins is in the United States. Now, I don't really care about Florence Foster Jenkins. I have never really found her all that amusing because the level of incompetence is perhaps matchless But this was a woman of enormous wealth who simply indulged herself. But I'll tell you something about Natalia. She was convinced that she was a great artist, but she was quite poor. Nevertheless, she financed her own recordings, including two that were made on the Columbia Records label. Those early recordings came out in the mid-1960s when Natalia was already in her 50s. And I'm not featuring any of those today because they feature Portuguese music, much of which is super interesting, but really none of which is sung with any kind of... I don't know. I don't want to say it doesn't have skill and accomplishment. It's just severely compromised, even when she was relatively young, by a recalcitrant voice, but she was convinced that she was a great artist, and when I listen to her sing, I'm pulled along, and I find myself, in spite of all of the hilarious vocal faux pas and musical errors, somehow in awe of her understanding of what she's singing about, and her absolutely Desperate need to convey that meaning. I don't think any of her records displays that more clearly than her 1982 recording of Leonora's aria from the final act of Trovatore, D'amor sull'ali rose. Yes, of course, Leontine's more gorgeously vocalized. Caballe is flawless. Maria brings an unmatched vitality and there are so many other singers to which natalia cannot hold a candle and yet and yet and yet see what you think I'm only going to play one aria from Ballo today, and that is a portion of the big scene at the beginning of Act 2. And once again, we hear Natalia de Andrade. There are some alarmingly explosive attacks on high notes. But once again, man, I don't think I've ever heard Amelia's terror so clearly conveyed as it is here. (tries)
2: che <tries> Oh, che bello da testa di sotea si leva e sopiro oh, e io che il padeno a e mafise e mafise e che
0: Now it's really time to introduce you more fully to the extraordinary voice and artistry of Marie Lynn, whose real name was Marilyn Sussman. On that Alternate Universe Bel Canto episode, I read a few fan letters that were sent to and received from Marie Lynn during her heyday, as the singing hostess of the Golden Treasury of Song. I think of her almost as an alternate universe Beverly Sills or Anneliese Rottenberger. She had this folksy, populist approach to presenting opera to the masses, but what she didn't have was any kind of linguistic skill. I have never heard more ridiculous, ridiculously formulated Italian than I do from Marie Lynn. And her introductions to the pieces that she's singing are screamingly funny. On the episode four years ago, I featured her in Violetta's last act aria from Traviata. Today, we're going to hear an excerpt from Marie Lynn's truly treasurable episode, The Art of the Coloratura, which also very famously includes her over-cadenzerized version of Una Voce Poco Fa. One of the things in Marie Lynn's vocal arsenal that I absolutely adore is when she's singing very difficult coloratura and she ends up taking on a vocal technique that sounds like Dino in The Flintstones. You know what I'm talking about? That (laughs) Anyway, we're going to hear a couple examples of that in this next excerpt, the first of two featuring Marie Lynn from Rigoletto, and I'll let her do the introduction. And by the way, this thing that she's talking about, about sopranos inserting a high C at the end of Tutte le Festi al Tempio, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It's the middle of a duet. And Rigoletto immediately follows at the conclusion of her little foregrounded moment, which is a sort of aria. But it certainly doesn't end with a high C, although it does here. Thank goodness.
1: The coloratura handled the dramatic content of an opera by always putting in a high note at the end of each aria. In the very dramatic scene in Rigoletto where Gilda tells her father that the Duke has kidnapped and raped her, the coloratura managed to get a high C added to the end of the aria, Tutti le feste tempo.
0: the Golden Treasury of Song was accompanied by a group called the Howard Salat Quartet Local 802. And Howard Salat was, I don't know, he's a pianist and maybe a music director. I really couldn't find out too much information about him other than the fact that he was a member of the Local 802 Musicians Union. These guys, because they're all guys, accompanying Marie Lynn are really always on their toes, especially Maestro Salat, because one never knows what she's going to pull next. And I have to tell you, these things were all shot live onto video, and then they would be re over and over and over again over years. And by the way, I do have just a little story of my own about this. It's pretty humiliating, yet uproarious, and I don't mind sharing it with you. So when I first moved to New York, I played in a number of voice studios, including some kind of high-powered names, shall we say. At least some of them were the flavor of the month teachers of the day including one, I'm not going to tell you what his name was, but he had some gifted singers coming through his door, but it was because he professed to have been the teacher of a certain, now disgraced, tenor. I'm not sure he ever was really his teacher, but man, the technique that he was teaching. He had people shoving the piano forward by pushing out on their diaphragm. I mean... I just sometimes had to close my ears so that I could collect my check at the end of the day. And those were long days. Believe me, those were 10-hour days. And I was getting paid $10 an hour. So one day, this soprano comes in and she's like,
1: I'm shooting
0: a cable access program today and my pianist just pulled out. I don't know what I'm going to do. And the teacher said to her, "Oh, well, Daniel will go with you down to the studio." And I was like, "Uh, what are you singing?" And she's like, "Oh, um, well, it's a, it's 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 all sight readable. You you know it all. I mean, this is standard rep." So we get there, and she throws the balatella at me from Pagliacci. I could never play that. It's so many notes, and it was just totally, always, completely beyond my capabilities. I mean, I just didn't have the skill set to be able to play those things. If you just needed someone to be artistic and to make a big sound, like a big Puccini aria or something, oh man, I was so good at that. But with things like the Ballatella, no word from Tom from Rake's Progress, or Musik ist eine heilige Kunst from Ariadne of Naxos, for get it. So she pulls out the Balatella at the studio and I didn't, I couldn't even get through it. Oh my God. And then at the end of it, the host of whatever this program was said to her, and why don't you please introduce us to your wonderful pianist? And she didn't know what my name was. So she like looked at me like, I don't know who you are. And I'm like, I don't know who you are either. And right now I really would rather not give my name. But anyway, so I said what my name was. I should have made up a name. But years later, I would have people coming up to me like at my church job. And this was like 15, 20 years later. And they'd say oh i saw you on cable access last night i was like what are you talking about because remember cable access also had things like porn like robin bird and stuff like that not that i ever did any of that but it would have been a more legitimate way of earning a living i think anyway oh my god so i did have my own little experience with cable access and these programs such as the golden treasury of song anyway Marie Lynn was so popular with her public that she also released a couple of albums which they released using the logo for Philips Records, that most distinguished of European record labels. I mean, and the photos of her were so airbrushed you wouldn't have even recognized her. One of those records on the Philips label featured her in live recordings from the Golden Treasury of Song, and the other one featured Marie Lynn accompanied by a symphony orchestra conducted by Howard Salat. Now, the name of the orchestra was given as the Belgravia Philharmonia Symphonica Orchestra. And what I think probably happened is that Howard Salat went over without Marie Lynn and recorded sort of music minus one accompaniments to the arias that Marie Lynn was going to sing. Because how else to explain how she gets so off? I mean, she couldn't possibly have been present at the orchestral recording sessions. She couldn't possibly have been, or they would have corrected some of these mistakes. It's just one of the hilarious things, but also these recordings are not readily available. So I'm happy to have two
1: actually make that three
0: different recordings of Marie Lynn with Howard Salat leading the Belgravia Philharmonia Symphonica Orchestra. And the first of these is Caro Nome. I have to say, I love it when these divas of a certain age try to play. Innocent, virginal teenage girls because they take on a vocal quality that um, is incompatible with their actual vocalism. I think you're going to hear what I'm talking about in this excerpt from their recording of Caro (laughs) Nomi. operas that always draw the attention of divas such as the singers we've been hearing today, and one of them is Aida. And really, what better opportunity? Because these singers can not only show their dramatic chops in an aria like Ritorna Vincitor, but they can also display their pristine vocal line in an aria like O Patria Mia. I have a couple examples here with the singers that we've been hearing thus far. First, I put together a composite performance of Ritorna Vincitor that begins with Marie Lynn and Howard Salat leading the Belgravia Philharmonia Sinfonica Orchestra. And I cut at various points to Natalia De Andrade's recording from 1982 with the pianist Grazzi Barbosa. We go back and forth and back and forth, and I don't think there'll be any question about who's singing. But it's interesting to compare the artistry of both of these singers. There was a book written by Ethan Morden. And that book came out in the early 1980s, and it was called Demented, and it was a study of, basically, of gay men's worship of their opera divas. In this book, he made a distinction between two different kinds of singers. The Stim Diva, who was all about the Stimme, or her voice, and the Kunst Diva, who was all about the artistry behind and underneath and enveloping the voice itself. Just for shorthand, think of Tebaldi as a Stimmdiva and Kalas as a Kunstdiva. I mean, honestly, these two categories are not mutually exclusive by any means, and so it doesn't always hold water. If we were going to apply such terms to the artists I'm featuring today, I would say that Marie-Lynn was a stim diva, and Natalia de Andrade is a Kunst diva. But often they move back and forth between these two categories, as I think you're going to hear in this composite performance of Ritorna Vincitor.
2: Inceto del Padre, ee, 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 into the
1: your we're <sweak> a motto say so corate e dietro il caro
2: Alcino, don padre, la filia, rende stru-
0: Let's return to Olive Middleton for a moment, shall we? There is a good deal of recordings that were made privately by Madame Middleton's fans, who would probably sneak in their giant reel-to-reel recording machines under their coats when they went to performances at La Puma. And some of these have been reissued. But she didn't sing just Verdi, she sang Wagner, she sang Gioconda, she sang Tosca quite memorably, she sang Norma, I mean, she sang Sieglinde in Valkyrie, she sang everything, well, sang in scare quotes. Evidently, one of her greatest roles was Aida. At one point in time, she evidently was a legitimate singer. And you kind of hear that. But by the time she's in her mid-70s, well, she reached certain pitches, like that high C in the Miserere. So sometimes, if she really screwed her courage to the sticking place, she could manage to come out with these higher tones. Let's listen to a little bit of the duet between Aida and Amunazro from a La Puma performance of Aida sometime probably in the 1960s. I don't know who the baritone is, but he's not all that bad. Now, he does have a couple kind of raw-sounding notes, but honestly, if you have ever sung performances with singers who were not very good, you can feel super secure in your technique, and still you end up taking on some of their mal canto habits it's happened to me let's be charitable and say that's what happened to the baritone here something charmingly fearless about Madame Middleton. I think you'll agree. But in terms of pathos, none of these divas surpasses Natalia de Andrade. She was convinced of her artistic genius. She felt her recordings to be on the same level with those of Maria Callas. She lived in poverty. She self-financed a slew of recordings. I think the final number is six, perhaps, over an approximately 20-year period from the mid-60s to the mid-80s. Eventually, a kind of fame found its way to her, and she made television appearances, sang in concerts that received ecstatic if mocking, responses, but she always was held up as a figure of ridicule, and yet she took it. I think it could have been because of all of those years of operating under the radar, completely in the shadows. She took it even when they made her into a clown, and she ended her life in a remote nursing home where she spoke constantly about her great operatic career, and regaled staff with stories of her former glory. But evidently, no one ever came to visit her, and she died entirely alone. It's not a pretty story. And that colors the way that I listen to her records, frankly. From what I think was the last of these self-produced recordings, she began taking on repertoire that was far beyond her vocal means. How many sopranos do we know that fall into this trap? They think, oh, I can sing Turandot. Oh, I can sing Abigail. what have you. And in fact, on that late recording, she does sing Turandot, and she does sing some other pretty hefty parts, including Aida. And from that recording, we're going to hear a portion of her inimitable performance of O Patria Mia. <laughs>
2: What do you think? believe we
0: one final moment in the sun, because she does something so extraordinarily strange with the parlando passages between verses of O Patria Mia, and I just had to play that for you. Also, also, of course, whenever one can hear one of those miraculously shattered high notes from Marie Lynn, in this case, of course, the legendary high sea at the conclusion of patria mia well you just can't say no off our Aida section today. I just want to play a very short clip of Sylvia Sawyer's Amneris. It's the moments after Radames has been led off to be judged by the high priests and Amneris is alone lamenting her selfish jealousy that has put Radames face to face with a death sentence for treason. Pretty intense stuff. Not that you would ever get a sense of that from Sylvia Sawyer's Laissez-Faire delivery. io stesso Yostesso lo
3: Aime, morir mi sento. Time. Mm-hmm.
4: Oh, mm-hmm. and the
3: breath of tragedy, I e I
0: From that last record of Natalia's, we're also going to hear a little bit of her Pace Pace Mio Dio. She is the queen of pathos. Eliana Kotrubash ain't got nothing on her she manages to evoke our deepest sympathies. But when she delivers that curse at the end of Pache Pache, it sounds as if she's hurling down imprecations on God knows who, who did her wrong. And the final B-flat really sounds like she is about to self-destruct. This is a diva on the verge of a vocal breakdown.
2: Involve La page Quisto L'amore Involve La page Quisto L'amore Involve la page E il la sola vita. che profanari e sacro
0: just want to play two examples from Traviata. What better role for the deluded diva making her own kind of music? I will let Marie Lynn introduce us to this character. This is from one of my favorite episodes of the Golden Treasury of Song, snappily entitled Excerpts from Verdi's La Traviata. I've truncated the performance somewhat, but I still think you will get the full flavor of Marie Lynn's vocal and interpretive genius.
1: La Traviata, The Broken One, The Story of Dumas Camille, Marguerite Gautier becomes Violetta Valéry, and Armand Duval Alfredo Germont. A delicate beauty, so fragile, her life was over before she really lived. Nicknamed for the flower she loved so much. A high-class call girl for the royalty and nobility of Paris. Knowing that her health is failing, she lives only for pleasure and excitement. At one of her parties, she meets Alfredo, a young man, young enough to be her son. Their eyes meet, and both of them realize that this is the love of their lives. Violetta muses to herself, can one who has lived a life such as hers reach out for this one perfect love? But no, the time is out of joint to pleasure, liberty, and excitement. But all of the time Alfredo's voice haunts her every thought. The prelude to the first act of La Traviata, followed by Afford de Lui and then Sempre Libera.
0: When I spoke just a few minutes ago about the pathos that infuses all of Natalia de D'Andrad's recordings, I have to say this last example stands out. It's her version of Violetta's letter scene and the addio del passato. Except for some, again, pretty desperate high notes, this is... (laughs) I'm stunned to have made this discovery. It is artistry of the highest order. There's also a good deal of vocal shading, of almost even vocal technique. To me, she is the great artist among these operatic sopranos slash outsider music mavens. See if you don't agree.
2: Teneste la promessa, la disfida ebbe luogo. Il barone fu ferito, però migliora. Al freddo e in strano suolo, il vostro sacrificio io stesso ho svelato. Egli a voi tornerà per il suo perdono. Io purverò curatevi, meritate un avenir migliore. Giorgio, Germo, è tardi. Attendo, attendo. Néa me giungo mai Oh, come sono mutata Ma il dottore a sperar pure me l'orto Oh, Con tal morbo ogni speranza morta. Addio del pasado, poi sogné Riven-te, il è rosé Del volto, dio sonno, palente
0: began the episode with a pop song, and I'm going to end with another pop song. At the beginning, we heard two of the greatest pop voices of the 20th century, Julie Andrews and Cass Elliott. Not the singers one would normally think of together, but nevertheless, each in her own way was one of the top pop singers of the 20th century. We're going to end with a different kind of artist one who made a big splash in the early 2000s. That's Wing. Wing was a Chinese woman who emigrated to New Zealand and there began entertaining residents of nursing homes and the like. Those who enjoyed her unique performances encouraged her to make some recordings. So she got her karaoke tracks and she put out record after record after record. This led to her being featured in an episode of South Park. It led to a U.S. tour. It led to the kind of adulation that was also showered upon the operatic divas that we've heard today. Wing, sadly, is now in retirement, and most people don't remember her anymore, But I concluded my episode four years ago with Wing singing exactly this song, Joe Raposo's Sing, that was initially featured on Sesame Street and also was a top ten hit for The Carpenters. But there ain't nobody can sing it the way that Wing did, because when somebody like this sings the words, don't worry If it's not good enough for anyone else to hear, just sing, sing a song. That's precisely what she does. That's precisely what Olive Middleton did. That's precisely what Marie Lynn did. Um, I'm not so sure about (laughs) Sylvia Sawyer, but it is precisely what Natalia de Andrade did. My hats off to all of these women, these unique, fearless, extraordinary, visionary women. And that is no joke.
2: Sing, sing a song. Sing Sing